0: Praise His name. Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. We're going to talk again more and more coming out of that testimony about how great the Lord is and how wonderful and gracious and generous He is. Malachi chapter 3, we're in the fourth week of our study on biblical giving and so far, We've learned about the heart behind giving. That was week one. Then we talked about the principle of first fruits. And then last week we, I pray, understood the tithe and about the application for the church age. This morning, we're going to look at a very interesting text. In fact, I believe that this is the only text in the Bible where the Lord issues a direct challenge to us, where he tells us, you need to try me in this. You need to test me in this. And it's in terms of giving, uh, fitting in with our series. But what he's essentially saying here is, if you give what you're supposed to give, if you do what I've called you to do, make me prove that I'll keep my promise to you. Try me. Test me. Go ahead. Give, Give what I've called you to do and see what I do. Now, That's a fascinating statement by the Lord, and it raises a lot of possibilities about the ways that He's willing to help us and the ways He's willing to provide for us. But it's very important that we understand that there are three prerequisites that precede His promise. There are three conditions that He says, before I will do this, you need to do this. And we'll look at those in a minute. It's important we see that because, unfortunately, this passage, Malachi chapter 3, verses 8-12, 8-12, uh, this passage has been misinterpreted, it's been misappropriated to support bad theology. And it's been misappropriated to support bad theology by people who argue that all, wa- all God wants to do is give to us. All God wants to do is just, is just keep giving, keep giving, keep giving. And usually that goes hand in hand with asking people to give to their personal ministry. And a lot of times it's attached to, to what I would, I guess, carefully call trinkets, like prayer cloths and anointed water from the Jordan River and other little things that go along with that that are given out as kind of a prize that if you give this way and you give to this ministry, we'll give you something back and, and we assure you that God will give to you materially. Now that's wrong and it's teaching that comes Uh, out of understanding this passage out of context and in doing that it not only misleads many many people but even more important it misses a very powerful understanding of the amazing grace of God and the amazing generosity of God in pouring out his grace. So I want to make sure this morning that we see this in its proper context that we look how at how Israel's uh, actions and attitude precipitated this word from the Lord, because there's a lot of run-up to chapter 3. We never write, we know this as a church, we never want to pull a text out of context and just say, well, that's what it means, and that's how it applies to me, and I'm good to go. Context is key. Everybody say that with me. Context is key. So you have to know why that passage is there in that spot. Well, when we study Malachi, and I read it four or five times this week, when you study it, Everything that runs up to chapter 3 presents a very different picture of what's being said here in this text, okay? So let's read the text itself, and then I'll give you the context, and we'll develop this wonderful principle, okay? Verse 8, chapter 3, Malachi. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God answers, in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. All right, let's stop. Well, no, let's read down. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor it will... Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed. For you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Three times he uses the Lord of hosts. He wants to reemphasize that this is God talking. This is a principle from the one who owns all things. Now, let's talk about context. Because the context of this is very fascinating. Everything that precedes... Malachi 3:10 okay two verses into what we read everything that precedes that is a very strong and direct indictment of Israel it's an indictment of their unfaithfulness and it's an indictment of their contemptuous uh, disregard for the Lord they they' they're completely off track at this point they're completely uh, just just rebellious in their heart stubborn resistant. And proud and unfaithful. So right in the start of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord begins speaking. And everything he says calls out the nation for their defiance and for their lack of repentance. In fact, not only are they disobedient and uncaring, but every time the Lord says something about his love or challenges their rebellion, they mock him. They mock him by saying, when did you show us love? And when did you do stuff for us? And when did we do that? We didn't do that, Lord. There there was nothing we did about that. So 12 times, we know when repetition happens, we're supposed to pay attention, right? 12 times between chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 12, the Lord uses the same phrase. He'll say something, and then he'll say, but you say But you say, so I loved you. But you say, when did you love us? And I say that you've robbed me. Oh, but you say, when did we rob you? Over and over and over again. You can study it this week. Twelve times, God puts it back on them and says, but you say, but you say, but you say. Again, there's this spirit of argument. There's a spirit of rebellion. Rebellion. Now let's see what he's calling them out for. So chapter 1, a couple things. He confronts their disrespect and their hatred and the fact that they've been defiling the altar and their false weariness. They're like, oh, we're so weary of trying to obey you. And they're complaining like their forefathers in the wilderness. We're so worn out. It's just so much, Lord. We just can't do it. And he says, listen, it's not because I'm asking too much. It's because you don't like me. It's because you don't want to have anything to do with me and you disrespect me and, and you don't care about me. So that's chapter one. Then in chapter two, he calls out the priests. He said, you've been dishonorable. You haven't taught the word of God. You have, you have uh, let the people be confused and you've let rampant sin take place. So now I'm weary of you, actually. If we're going to talk about somebody who's weary, I'm weary. I'm weary of what you're doing. Then in chapter three... He warns them in the start of the chapter that there's a Messiah coming. And the Messiah is going to come, and this is a different picture we often see of Jesus, is he's going to come and refine their hearts. He's going to put the fire underneath them. And he's going to bring them to judgment if they don't repent. And then he says in the text that we're going to get to, that they've been robbing him by not bringing their tithe to him. And again, this is not just about 10%, as we saw last week. This is about their heart. Now, every time he rebukes them, and again, study it this week. It's only four chapters long. Study it this week. Every time he rebukes them, but you say, but you say, but you say. And the fact that it's repeated a dozen times not only tells us to pay attention, but it shows that there was a continual resistance. There was a continual pushback, continual argument against his word and against his correction. Now, that being said, isn't it amazing how patient and long-suffering the Lord is with us. After just one of their arrogant, condescending, self-righteous, sarcastic questions, when did we do that? When did you love us? When did you help us? After just one of those, he could have said, you know what, I'm done with you. I've been putting up this for a thousand years. I'm justified in disciplining you. I'm just going to give up on you. But instead, and here's where this passage of this morning is exciting. He calls them to change. And then he says, if you change, I'm going to lay out an amazing promise to you. Now, some people would argue, and I've heard this over the years, that this makes the Lord seem weak. That he's kind of gullible. He'll keep pouring out his grace and people keep abusing it. And why would he do that? But I would argue just the opposite. I believe that it shows the power of God's love. And the strength of his holy character. And the wideness of his grace. That he doesn't give up on us. He's willing to forgive us. And he's willing to help us. And he's willing to bless us. And how many are glad for that this morning? How many are glad that that God loves us and God shows his grace? Imagine if he wasn't willing to do that. Imagine how we'd feel this morning, stuck in our arrogance and being so so cocky and so condescending and yet facing the punishment that we really deserve. Now, with all that context in mind, and I give it to you quickly, chapters 1, 2, and 3, it makes these promises in chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, that much more powerful. Because he's willing to say, to this defiant, unrepentant people, that he'll do this. So imagine how much more he's willing to do for his faithful children. If Israel is spiritually calloused and profane, I'm using the words that he uses, and unclean and ungrateful and and insolent, And it doesn't even bother them. In fact, not only does it not bother them, but they're mocking him when he talks about what he's done. If he still will take that people and make the promise that he does in verses 10 to 12, then how will he act when we love him? and when we trust Him, and when we live for Him, and when we walk by His Spirit, and when we serve Him, and when we tell other people about Him, and when we give wholeheartedly to Him, if that's the promise for Israel, imagine what God's ready to do for us. The possibilities are just endless. But as we learn with Israel, He's not going to do that unless we honor Him first. He's not going to do that unless we honor him with how we live and how we give. So there are some warnings here. There are some instructions that establish the conditions of his blessing. And I want to encourage you, many of you do, I want to encourage you to take notes this morning because we need to keep these words, these statements as a constant reminder as we give, both to guard our heart make sure our heart's right, and to be excited about His promises, okay? So three, I'm going to give you this morning, start in verse 8. The first prerequisite, the first condition of God fulfilling His promise is He says, stop robbing me. Stop robbing me. Now, the reason why we're doing this particular study, fourth in the series, is that we wanted to be sure we understand the theological concept of giving before we get to this point. Because if we don't, we're going to react like Israel does in verse 8, where they say, when have we robbed you? When, When did we ever do that? If we know first that giving is a heart issue... And then it's a lordship issue because first roots is the Lord comes first. So lordship means I live for him. I serve him. He's my master. He's my Lord. He's the one I answer to. So if it's a heart issue and a lordship issue, then it becomes a gratitude issue, right? Look at all God's done for us. We just have to bring a portion back. 10% at that point seems small. If we get heart, lordship, and gratitude, then we have the right perspective to hear the Lord's statement. But if our hearts are resistant and he isn't Lord, then this is going to be our mindset. Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? So the Lord says, all right, I'll make it clear. Since you don't seem to understand, look at the next four words in your tithes and offerings. Notice that he mentions both. So this is not just a clinical issue of the law, like, well, you've got to bring your tithe. It's not that. He says, you've robbed me in your tithes and your offerings. In other words, this goes way beyond the law. This is out of your heart. And he says, all of you are guilty of it. The whole nation's guilty of it. Just like America, 3%. We're going to repeat that again. 3% of American evangelicals tithe. So so this verse, verse 8, that applies to us. And since robbery involves taking something that belongs to someone else, and we know that the Lord owns all things and has given us all that we have, every good and perfect gift comes from where? Above, right? So, so if it's all the Lord's and, and we are holding on to what He owns, then that's the robbery. We're taking what belongs to him, the portion that belongs to him, and we're keeping it and consuming it for ourselves instead of honoring him and giving to him first. Now, obviously, that's a very serious charge to be called a thief. So to be sure it's not true of us, we need to again examine the priority of our spending and the extent of our giving. And listen, there are going to be times when the Lord brings into our lives uh, situations that test our loyalty and test our faith like he did. You remember in 1 Kings when Elijah goes to Zarephath and he finds the widow and he says, what's going on with you? And she says... I've got my last little bit of flour, my last little bit of oil. Going to go make a cake. My son and I, we're going to eat it. We're going to die because there was a drought. Elijah says, you remember, make one from me first. You're like, what? Make it for me first? Look, she's got a son. Like, and he says, nope, here's the test. Show that you trust the Lord. I'm a man of God. I'm telling you, if you make a cake for me first, that oil and that flour will never stop. And what does she do? She makes the cake, and for years, she's able to have food. God, at times, calls us to re-examine our giving and to make sure that we're not taking what's his first. Okay? So, first principle, stop robbing me. Second prerequisite, he says in verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now the Lord emphasizes the tithe because that was the baseline expectation of the law. But the whole tithe actually went past 10%. There was the first fruits offering and then the people were also supposed to give a second 10% 10 to the Levites for their service in the tabernacle. And then every three years, they were supposed to give another 10% to the poor. So this was not just, well, we're going to make it to 10. This went into 20, some years 30%. And the Lord says the reason for this, look at it in verse 10. He says, so there will be food in my house. Again, that refers to the supplies that were needed to make the tabernacle go and also the support of the priests and their families. Now this highlights one of the primary reasons why we gather on the first day of the week and why we take an offering here at church. Because the Lord is calling us to provide for the work of ministry and to provide for those that serve Him full-time. Now that becomes a little bit awkward because right now I'm the only employee And yet, it's good for us, right, to be aware of this purpose because the Lord, right now, is calling this church to do more. In the next month, I'm going to be presenting some new vision ideas to the leadership, and we're going to continue to work on this plan that we have for renovation, and for future ministry, and for future outreach. We've met a number of times with an architect. He's developed some really exciting concepts of how we can change the building and make it more secure for our kids, and make it more clean and fresh, and and more effective for ministry. And you've already seen some of the changes that we've done, right? We plowed the garden, we cleared off that field, and we seeded that, and then we changed all the lights. It's brighter in here, right? You can actually see your Bible now. And the lobby doesn't feel like a cave. Now it's very bright and happy. We changed all the lighting out there. Now we need to do, uh, we're going to change in the next month uh, some of the furnaces and thermostats. So we're going to have equal heating and air throughout the whole building. Say praise the Lord for that after we live through 30 degrees downtown. Now we've got to change flooring right away in the kids' rooms. We've got to change flooring in the lobby. We need to update the bathrooms, please. We need to change the sign, hopefully in the next two weeks. And then we want to hire more staff, and we want to expand our local outreach, and we want to take mission trips and support mission. Now, all of that takes finances. And you guys have given faithfully, and the Lord has blessed us with with disciplined spending and strong saving, and we hope that there's going to be uh, some giving from some friends outside the congregation. But the impetus for this falls on us. The impetus for this falls on our congregation. The question is how we respond. Do we see this as an opportunity to give faithfully to the Lord? Because if you look back at Malachi 3 in Israel, that wasn't happening. You're not bringing the whole tithe. And the Lord says, I know that you're only giving partially, you're withholding what I've commanded you, and, it, and the bottom line essentially is, you're stealing from me. The New Testament parallel is Acts 5, right? Ananias and Sapphira, they bring, they sell some land and they bring it to the apostles and they say, we've brought uh, money from the sale of our land. Now that would be fine, except they present it as, this is everything we got from the sale of the land. But the Holy Spirit tells us that they withheld some intentionally, partially, uh, because they didn't want to give what they should have given. Now, it wasn't that what they gave wasn't generous. It was that they misrepresented it. So again, come back to the question. If the Jews were called to give 10% as a minimum, how can we possibly give less? After all that Jesus has done, How can we give less? So he says, verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, because the Lord's unbelievably gracious, and because he again wants our giving to be from the heart and not from uh, an obligation, he makes an amazing statement at the end of verse 10. And this is the third prerequisite. And I love this. Okay, this should excite us. The third prerequisite at the end of the verse 10 is test my word I would add a second phrase there don't doubt me don't doubt me test my word see like everything else in our walk giving is ultimately an issue of faith can I trust the Lord to provide what I need can I trust the Lord to continually provide if I give faithfully to him Will he bless me for putting him first in everything? Will I be content if I deny myself and trust in him and, and, and give sacrificially and bring the whole tithe to the storehouse and, and, and I'm not withholding? Will, will God actually work? Now, those are legitimate questions. And we wrestle with them in our humanity. So I don't want to marginalize them in any way. But listen, the Lord knows how we think, right? And and Jesus is in all points acquainted with what we experience. So again, God pours out His love. Again, He pours out His mercy. Again, He pours out His grace. And He says to us, this challenge at the end of verse 10. He says, test me. Try me. Try it out. If you aren't sure whether I'll work, then, then, then try it. Show your faith in me and bring what I've called you to give. And see what I do. Now, God isn't being sarcastic here. He's not taunting us. Well, try it, try it. No, that, that, we know the Lord better than that. He's saying, I'm calling you to trust my faithfulness. I'm calling you to trust my faithfulness. And this is not a contradiction of Matthew 4 where during his temptation Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8. And he says, you're not to tempt the Lord, you're not to put the Lord to a test. That was a reference to to Exodus 17, which was an incident at a place called Massa and Meribah, where Israel murmured and complained against the Lord and said, God doesn't help us, and God doesn't provide for us, and Moses, we need water, we're thirsty, and why won't God help us, and we should go back to Egypt. And finally, God said to Moses, strike that rock over there and bring some water and show them that I'm faithful. So God says to them, be careful, don't don't operate out of a lack of faith, don't operate out of a rebellious spirit and out of fear, don't don't resist trusting me and rejecting me, that's not what he's talking about here in Malachi 3. This text is about testing the Lord, not tempting him, not, 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 uh, confronting him and challenging him and 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 questioning his authority and his provision that 's not what this is about. This is about testing the Lord as a result of fearing him as a result of trusting him as a result of our con. A confident relationship with him. Lord, because you're faithful, because I trust you, because I've seen you provide so many times, now you're telling me if I give, I can put you to the test. That's not tempting the Lord. That's trusting the Lord. And the difference between the two is profound. It's a lack of faith versus a strong faith. Of course, the Lord shouldn't have to ask for our faith, right? Right? The Lord should never have to say to a believer, you need to trust me. I keep my word. Because how many of us know that God always keeps his word? How many of us know that God's always worthy of our trust? Listen, just look at Jesus and you know that. But as always, this is the spiritual battle of our lives, right? Whether we're going to trust or not. Comes back to giving. We're going to trust or not. Do, Do I think the Lord will really provide? And God, as always, look back at the verse, is gracious beyond understanding. So he says, listen, you want to trust me? You want to confidently give sacrificially to me? Here's what I'm going to do. Test me. See if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out blessing that overflows. Just just try it. Try it. Trust me. Obey me. Do what I say. Because I know best. I've proven that time and again. There are so many wonderful pictures in that verse, in the end of verse 10. But look quickly at three. Number one, we have this picture of heaven being this full storehouse that the Lord is willing to, and waiting to open up. Now, how awesome is that picture we sang earlier intentionally, open up the heavens. When I was studying this, this is the first song I wanted to sing this week, open up the heavens. That's not just a nice idea. The Lord promises in Malachi 3:10 that that's a reality. I'm ready to act. Look, I got all this storehouse of heaven. We're not talking about new cars and new houses. We're talking about the favor and blessing and help and provision of God. So he says, I'm ready. I'm willing. It's, it's, <laughs> all I got to do is unlatch it. Trust me. Try me. Try, come on. Just, just try it out. Do it. And, and I tell you what, I'm going to unlatch it and I'm going to open up and the blessing is just going to pour out. Second, notice that it's Personal. Twice he says, if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. In other words, this is a call for us to be faithful and give. But he says, when you do that, I have you in view. I'm ready to personally work on your behalf. So you trust me, you give to me, I unlatch, I open up, and, and it's right for you. Paul Rhodes, it's for you. Harbor rock Tabernacle it's for you and here's the third part when I do this when I bless you I'm gonna pour it out. It's not going to be all right well you get that Trust me more okay I'll give you I'll give you that come on come on come on like like you're training a puppy right come on come on boy or a little child that's learning to walk. Come on. You gotta put, that's not what the Lord does. That's not what he says. Oh, listen, when I unlatch that storehouse, when I open up the windows, it's abundant. I'm going to pour it out. I'm not stingy. I've never been stingy. I gave my own son for you. I changed your nature. I adopted you. You're mine. I paid the price that the, that the devil was asking because you were in sin. I paid that price. It cost my son his blood. You know what? I'm not going to be stingy. When you trust me, my grace will be greater than any failure. My blessing will be any greater than any need. My provision will be beyond your expectation. So test me on this. And I'll open up the storehouse and pour it out. Just be faithful to me. I'll be faithful to you. Give to me what I've called you to give, because I've always been gracious and generous. Trust me, because I've always been worthy of your trust. I've proven that I'm worthy of your trust. I've never failed you, I've never forsaken you. So test me. Test my word, test my promises, and see if I don't bless you to overflowing. Now, turn over to one more passage. Because we know all Scripture is profitable. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 9. All Scripture is profitable for teaching and training in righteousness. But, but how do we know that Malachi 3 applies to us? Because it was written specifically to Israel. And it was written 2,500 years ago. So can we apply the promise That we read in Matthew 3, excuse me, Malachi 3, about God opening up the storehouse of heaven. Can we trust that? Can we apply that today? Well, 2 Corinthians 9 reminds us of just how faithful God's word is. So look at 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6. Same Holy Spirit writing this. Now, this I say, he who sows sparingly, Will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Oh, look at verse eight. You're going to like this one. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything you may have an abundance for every good deed as it's written he scattered abroad he gave to the poor his righteousness endures forever now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness you will be enriched in everything for all liberality who through us which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. What does that mean? Well, the message is very, very clear. Verse 6, you sow little, you reap little. You sow a lot, you reap a lot. There's no subjectivity, there's no nuance, it is a direct correlation. You sow a little, you reap a little, you sow a lot, you reap a lot. And then not to be redundant, but verse 7 tells us that this is an attitude of the heart that God loves a cheerful giver. He loves when we give out of our love and respect and gratitude. And then we have this awesome promise in verse 8 that sounds a lot like Malachi 3. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance for every good deed. In case you weren't keeping count, that's six definitives. In which the Lord says... I will provide completely and abundantly. And then, verses 10 and 11, he says, I'll supply and multiply and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Notice that it's not material, it's spiritual. And you'll be enriched in everything for all liberality. That's two more definitives which will produce in you more thanksgiving and praise. In other words, the message is consistent from Malachi 3 to 2 Corinthians 9 to today. When you trust the Lord, when you give generously, God will abundantly bless. Now, that does not always mean material reward. It does not mean everything will be easy. Penny's testimony echoed that. It's not all, I forget what she said, puppies and rainbows. Good name for an autobiography. It's not always easy. But when we give generously to the Lord, you never regret it, right? You never regret it. So I want to present an opportunity for us to test the Lord. Because he tells us to, and he tells us to, to, that he'll keep his word. I read another church, and I think a number of churches in this, did a 90-day tithing challenge. In the next 90 days, three months starting today, commit to giving at least 10% of your income to the Lord. And at the end of 90 days, see if God's blessed you the way he said he would. Now, this is his word. This is not my clever little challenge. This is what he tells us to do. It's not an attempt to be manipulative or cute or clever or anything like that. We're we're simply doing what the Lord's called us to do. Now, Now, if we do that, it doesn't guarantee we're going to get a raise or get a new car or that all the bills will go away because that would be misguided, right? That would be the wrong focus. Well, I'm going to give so God will take away all my debt and I'll get that car I need and and, 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 and I'm going to work it. I'm going to work the situation. That's not what this is about. Give to me. Test me. And see if I not only will not provide... But I'm going to unlatch and open up and pour out blessing on you. Maybe material, maybe spiritual, maybe emotional. I don't know. Maybe relational. But, but I'm going to do it. Sounds good, right? Let's give the Lord an opportunity to, again, prove his mercy. Not that he needs to. But he says, I'll do this. Test me. Try me. Praise the Lord. Let's ask him to help us.